Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and welcome to episode 815 with Amy Gallo. Is there anyone at work you find difficult to get along with, perhaps? Well, Amy's got some pro tips on how you can, in fact, get along with anyone. So you'll learn, one, the massive costs of bad relationships at work. Two, how to build your immunity to criticism. And three, how to work well with eight key different types of difficult people. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've mentioned, please visit us at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP815. And while at awesomeatyourjob.com, check out some of our goodies like the full text transcripts, some good email stuff, and a whole lot more at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Amy's story. Amy Gallo is a contributing editor at Harvard Business Review. She's the author of the HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict and Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, and a co-host of HBR's Women at Work podcast. Her articles have been collected in dozens of books on emotional intelligence, giving and receiving feedback, time management, and leadership. As a sought-after speaker and facilitator, Gallo has helped thousands of leaders deal with conflict more effectively and navigate complicated workplace dynamics. She's a graduate of Yale University and holds a master's from Brown University. Big thanks to Amy for sharing her wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Amy. Amy, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thanks for having me, Pete. Oh, thank you for being here. I'm excited to chat and we're going to learn at last how to get along (laughs) with anyone at work. Impressive. Thanks. But first, I need to hear a little bit about you and karaoke. What's the story here? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I have a terrible voice. Like, I feel like I could be the definition of tone deaf, but I love to sing. So karaoke is where I thrive. and. It's funny when I go, my husband knows how much I love karaoke. He knows what my voice sounds like. But when we go to karaoke with new people and I start singing, there's a moment where like their eyes go wide and they're like, wait, what's happening? And because I think it's probably pretty terrible, but I make up for it in enthusiasm. Because I think they're just sort of like, wow, she's really having a great time. And it sounds terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in a way, I think there's a certain beauty to that. I don't know what virtue I'd pin it on, but it's something good. It says something good about you, Amy. Zest for life. Yeah. Humility, fun-lovingness. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, confidence, too, of just like, you know what? It sounds terrible, but I'm having fun. So, like, have fun with me. Yes. 
Yeah. And I, my favorite karaoke song is Don't Stop Believin' <laughs> by Journey, which can be sung as a duet. And oftentimes I've, I've gotten strangers to s- sing the duet with me. But these were pre-COVID times. I haven't done karaoke in a long time. Oh, well, well I hope that you get some soon. It sounds like a hoot. Thank you. All right. Well, let's talk about your latest here. Getting along, how to work with anyone, even difficult people. That's a, a nice promise of a title inside <laughs> mm-hmm. that book. Can you tell us maybe for starters, just to get the, the juices flowing, any yeah. particularly surprising, counterintuitive, extra fascinating discoveries you've made along the way in doing your research and assembling this book here? Yeah. Actually, I'll share two things. One is something I found out in writing the book and something that I found out since writing the book. So the first one I would say, I knew that social connections were important at work. And I knew that having fractured relationships or stressful relationships or tense relationships with your coworkers was not good. But the depth of research on the impact of social connections, positive social connections on us as both in terms of our well-being, but also in terms of our performance. I mean, there's this amazing study that showed from a team of professors at Rutgers that showed that people who identify as friends at work have better performance review ratings, right? So the the whole idea that this is soft and, oh, it would be nice to have a friend at work, you know, it's not. This is actually really about productivity and performance. And then on the flip side, the research around how terrible stressful relationships are or animosity in our relationships, both for our productivity, creativity, but also for our health. I mean, there's studies that show that having an incompetent manager, for example, raises the likelihood that you'll have a heart disease. Or there's studies that show that if you that people who have animosity in their relationships had wounds that were less slow to heal or were slower to heal. Well, okay. Right? So it's actually having a physical impact on us. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think that when it comes to the the stress and the the cortisol or whatever sort of your biochemical mediators of that it seems like more and more research is showing up that when there's a, a chronic stress situation and not good healthy outlets such yeah. as sleep, exercise, friends, social support, bad things happen in the body. Yeah, yeah. And I think for years we thought the way we interact with coworkers, the, our relationships with them were sort of icing on the cake. And I think the just tremendous amount of research that shows the impact of those relationships make it clear that it is the cake, right? Uh This is how we get work done, whether or not we're successful, whether we achieve our goals is largely dependent on the quality of our relationships with the people we work with. Yeah, And I think it's just, it's, it's just so clear from the research. Now, the second insight I've had, I wanted to share, which has been since, since I wrote the book, and this is a little bit of insider baseball on the on the writing of the book is each chapter so i the book is around archetypes of types of difficult people and each of those chapters included a section of what if you are this person what if you are the insecure manager or the know-it-all what what should you do and the manuscript was just way too long so with my editor we agreed to cut those sections out and part of the thinking of doing that was that we didn't think people would actually have the yeah. self-awareness. Surely not I. Amy. Exactly. <laughs> like, who would get to that section and be like, oh, yeah, that's me, right? But I cannot tell you how many people have LinkedIn messaged me, tweeted at me, 
called me. My friends have texted me and said, I'm reading your book and I'm seeing myself in that archetype or I'm seeing myself in many of the archetypes. And which is so encouraging because it that's one of the themes of the book is that we're all the difficult person at times. And it can be hard to recognize that. It can be even harder to admit it. But the more we do that, the easier these interactions and resolving some of the conflicts we have with people we work with will be. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like a thesis right there. Well, I was about to ask, what's the big idea behind the book? Sounds like we hit it. Anything else you <laughs> want to mention in terms of a core thesis? Well, I think the the other thing is we often feel subjected to these relationships, especially if the person we're having difficulty with is a manager or someone we can't stop working with because they're they're a critical member of our team. And I think one of the other core themes is this is in your control. Not that you can change that other person, right? I don't have to explain to to people that you're that's not going to work, right? You can't actually set about making your colleague a different person, but you can control your thoughts, your feelings, your reactions, your behavior in a way that changes the dynamic. So you don't have to feel stuck in these challenging relationships. You actually can do something about it. Well, that is very inspiring and encouraging. So cool stuff. I don't have to change someone else. I have some areas of things I can control that will make an impact. That's right. And that's really cool. Could you maybe kick us off with an inspiring story of someone who there was a coworker, wow, they <laughs> weren't feeling it. And then they saw a transformation with some cool results. Yeah. So I actually will share a personal story. It's the story I opened the book with. It's not transformational in that all of a sudden this person became like my best friend. It's just, it just got easier. And I'll, I'll explain. So I had this boss earlier in my career who was just a chronic micromanager gossiped about people in the office with me, which made me believe she was probably gossiping about me to others, right? She would assign work and then the next day assign like three more projects. And when you said, well, what about these other things? She's like, why are you even focused on that? I really never knew where I stood and it was stressful, right? It was just incredibly stressful. And I found myself about three months into the job thinking about her constantly. I would be walking the dog thinking about what I was going to say to her in my the in mm-hmm. email response. I'd be at a birthday party and taking my daughter to, finding myself going over conversations we'd had. And I was like, okay, I got to quit. This is not worth it. And instead of quitting, and mm-hmm. I'm not sure what made me do this, but instead of quitting, I was like, wait, oh, let me see if I can just change the way I feel about her and like get like let her stop taking up so much room in my psyche. And by sort of reappraising the situation, you know, seeing it instead of being stuck working with this person, see it as an opportunity to keep this job, which I actually really like. And can I learn something from it? Can I learn about the kind of manager I want to be? Can I learn about how I handle stressful situations. I stayed in that job for 18 months. She did not change. I want to make that clear. Like, it's not that she behaved differently. I just changed the way I thought about it and the, and the amount of investment I put into making that relationship better. Because I was so, part of the, part of what was so hard is that I was set on, like, if I could just, <laughs> well, how do I want to say this? Like, I just thought if I could transform this relationship, right, if I could show her the way that her that her behavior was impacting others. And I had a friend who said, 
I don't know if she cares. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And so then I thought, okay, well, she doesn't care. Or even I don't know if she cares or not. So I'm not going to focus on priding myself on being able to reform this woman. Instead, I'm going to focus on priding myself on reforming myself. And, you know, it really became the beginning of this work that I'm that led to this book of just observing relationships, looking into the research around how do we deal with stressful relationships and what works and what doesn't. Okay, that's a lot of good stuff. And you've mapped out eight archetypes and I want to have a little bit of time on each of them, but it sounds like you've got a, a master key right here that would be applicable to all eight of them. So let's hit that first. Yeah. How do we control our thoughts, our feelings, and do a reappraisal? Mm-hmm. Are there some super powerful questions or breathing techniques or what are sort of all your favorite tools that yeah. can take us from, I want to strangle this person to, <laughs> oh, okay, that's all right. Yep. So a couple of things. Number one, I think that there's a mindset shift we have to make, which is that instead of believing that this relationship is indicative of who we are and what we're capable of, because that was that was the problem with my boss hmm. is that I was struggling with her and I was like, oh, I guess I'm not good at relationships with coworkers. I guess I'm not good at managing up. Maybe I'm not even good at my job because she seems to be questioning how good I am at that. But so rather than thinking of this interaction, this one relationship as indicative of who you are, remember that you probably have many, many more relationships with coworkers, people outside work that are positive and let those be a reflection. So I think that's the one you know, mindset shift you want to make right at the beginning is right size this person's influence on you, right? That that it's just one relationship. Remind yourself of that. And you've got many more that are probably very positive. Okay. The second thing I would say is that you really want to observe your reactions. So make an effort to really pay attention when you're in a, an unpleasant interaction with a coworker think about how do you react? So for me, sometimes I blame the other person, right? This is all their fault. Or I might blame myself. What have I done wrong? Or I try to like completely disengage and just shut down. This isn't worth my time. And I, I dismiss it all. All of those reactions are, are perfectly valid in that they're probably not true, <laughs> but they're perfectly valid in that they're, they're your thoughts and, and feelings. And I really learned this from a professor named Seagal Barsade. She was a professor at, at Wharton and unfortunately passed away a few years ago, but she talks about emotions being data, not noise, right? So rather than trying to get rid of those emotions, pay attention to them and what are they telling you about what you care about? And then another tool I would really say is is try to reappraise. So, and that's really what I was describing when I did with my boss was instead of saying, this is a vaccine situation I'm never going to get out of, or wow, this is this feels like a threat because many times these conflicts or difficult interactions pe- with people can feel like a threat. What's the opportunity here? What can I learn from the situation? I don't mean to put on rose-colored glasses and be naive while someone's you know mistreating you over and over, but I do mean to think maybe there's an opportunity here for me while I work on improving this relationship. Maybe there's an opportunity for me to learn something. And that learning might actually be interpersonal resilience, right? The development of the skill to bounce back from stressful situations when we're in them or bounce back 
more quickly when we have them, but also to feel less stress when we're in them. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, what comes to mind here is you're talking about a set of skills that, boy, any professional could benefit from, and (laughs) I would like more of myself. And I'm thinking about Dr. David Burns, who wrote Feeling Good, Feeling Great, and more. Mm. So digging those books. And he had a phrase about becoming immune to criticism. Mm. It's like, ooh. That sounds like a nice thing to have going for you. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'd like that. Yeah. And it sounds like a nice, positive, optimistic vibe to say, yeah. oh, this is cool. I have been have an opportunity to learn some resilience and maybe to become immune from criticism or, or any other kind of facets or angles or slants you want to put on yeah. the learning growth development opportunity. Yeah. I find when I'm feeling cranky, <laughs> in, <laughs> yeah. in, which might happen in, in such a context, yep. I'm not as jazzed about the idea of learning. It's like, <laughs> oh, Amy said I could do some learning to be more resilient. Or <laughs> Pete right. said I could learn to become immune to criticism. Right. So that's pretty snazzy. Yeah. I don't feel excited about the learning, even though I love <laughs> learning most of the time. Yeah. So any, any pro tips on uh, just maybe just getting a jolt to the system to yeah. steer into that happier place? Absolutely. And I will tell you, I'm the same way, right? It, it took me months to to change this relationship with, or my change my, my view of this relationship with my boss, right? It's not as if you're in the middle of being yelled at by a tormentor, or you just had credit for your project taken by a political operator. And you're like, what can I learn here? Of course, you're going to be angry, upset, right? That's where the sort of observing those reactions comes in, because you're going to give yourself some space. The other thing is you do need to make sure you allow yourself to feel those feelings and maybe even find someone to vent them to, right, to sort of get that out a little bit. And just remember, the one thing I do try to remember in the moment when I am so mad that our brains are meaning-making machines, right? So they're going to try to create a story around what's happening. And the story typically paints you as the hero and the other person as the villain or it's usually not an entirely true story. So allow yourself to feel the feelings, observe what your brain is telling you, and then ask yourself, one of my favorite things to do is to ask myself, okay, how do I know that's true? Is that true? What if I'm wrong, right? And just start to challenge yourself. And that's going to bring down the threat response or what emotional intelligence experts call amygdala hijack, which is where when you sense a threat, even if it's just a threat to the harmony you experience with others in the workplace, we go into that stress response. The amygdala takes precedence over the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for our rational thinking. And so we, you know, most people know this as the fight or flight. So of course, when you're in fight or flight, there's no opportunity to learn. Your brain is like protect, 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 or defend, defend, defend. And so you have to figure out how to sort of bring that down challenging the story you're telling yourself, even, I mean, sometimes going and having food, right? Or deciding, I'm not going to think about this today. Like I'll give myself 15 minutes to think about how mad I am at my boss or mad I am at my colleague, then I'm going to stop and then I'll see how I feel about it tomorrow. And I think that I can remember thinking about being immune to criticism. I mean, I don't know. I actually don't know that book and I don't know the author, but being, I don't know if we want to be immune to it. I just think we want to be immune to the shame or embarrassment that comes along with it because we want to be able to hear criticism and learn from it. Certainly. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. I think immune from the 
disease symptoms, if you will, <laughs> yeah, yeah. of that yeah. is how I interpreted it, as opposed to, I am oblivious to all feedback always from here on out. Okay. That's right. <laughs> Don't hear you. Thank you very much. Yeah, no. And I actually had this experience. I remember someone sent me a piece of criticism. Actually, 10 pieces. I remember it was a oh. list of 10 things and sent me Amy, email. here's all the things you're doing wrong. I've, yeah. I've done you the favor of consolidating them into a single document. Well, <laughs> and it was, it's actually even worse than it sounds because, because it was after I had done a very visible project. I was actually on video, this live video event. And it was it came into my inbox, I think, a half an hour after the event ended. And it was like, great event. Here are 10 things you should do differently next time. Hmm. And I mean, I was so mad. I was red in the face. I was, sh- I can remember I was shaking, like as if I hadn't eaten for a day. I was like, like just feeling woozy from, from my yeah. emotional response. And I just, I said, okay, like just close it. Like I can't process this in this mode. And so I'm just going to close it. I went and had lunch. I had cried, pretty sure I cried. <laughs> and then I came back to it and I was like, huh, okay, like number three, of the 10 are very valid. Another four probably have some truth to them. And then there's three I just, I don't believe. And so let me, with that frame of mind, actually react to what what was said. And you know what? It made the next one better. It really did. Yeah. Well, you're bringing back memories of the time (laughs) I in my early days of, of speaking, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just like, I want to be a speaker. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, follow your passion, right? And so <laughs> I, I did an all-school assembly, mm. and it was my first one. And uh, I learned the hard way that that's a very different audience than the students at a leadership conference. <laughs> that's it's right. Wildly different. And so I just missed the mark and and the principal sent a note that was brutal. It's like oh. I heard nothing but negative things. And <laughs> and so I, I chatted over with a good mentor, Maui, from episode number one. Great guy, mm. Maui Asgadam. And oof, it was so that that perspective is is perfect when he says you gotta whenever you get feedback, it's never completely true and it's never completely false. And I found that that's, that's been a, a real valuable perspective here on out is whenever you have feedback, some of it, just as you ran down with those 10 points, some of it's yep. dead on, some of it's just bonkers, and some of it's, hmm, we have to dig in and investigate and, and see some, some nuance and yep. context for how it applies. Yeah. It's funny. I'm glad we're talking about feedback because it is such a core part of interacting with people we find difficult, which is that oftentimes they're either giving us feedback, either verbally, like, or or in an email, like the two that we received, right? Or it's implicit, right? They're not agreeing with the way we're doing something, or we don't agree with the way they're doing something, right? So feedback is such a critical part of both how we deliver it and how we receive it of navigating these tricky relationships. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's great. Well, now let's dig into the eight archetypes. I, mm-hmm. I bet, boy, we could talk forever. It's like, oh, I know someone like this. But could you maybe <laughs> give us the name of the archetype, Yep. a quick maybe sentence or two for this is what that look, sounds, feels like, Yep. and then a quick sentence or two. And if you're seeing this, here's what I recommend you do. Yeah. Okay. So let's start insecure manager. First one, insecure boss. This is someone, my boss actually that I described earlier, probably fit into this category, who isn't entirely confident in their position and therefore will micromanage, 
will maybe make it impossible for you to do your job by withholding information or not letting you interact with people in another department, for example. Someone who basically is defending their ego through through their actions and behaviors. So one of the things to remember about the insecure manager is we all have some level of insecurity. It's a normal thing. If you don't, you're in that nice, tiny little group of people called psychopaths, right? So we all have some self-doubt. With what the research shows around insecure managers is that one of the things that works, and I don't love giving this advice because it's not fun to do, but is that you really have to help calm their ego. And that may include giving them some genuine compliments, pointing out things that they do well. I imagine there's something, right? Because that helps to calm the ego and you help conform an alliance with them in terms of how do we actually do this work? How do we move forward? How do you get what you want? Okay, so then there's the pessimist. I think that's pretty clear that someone who's just overly negative shoots down ideas left and right. One of the things that you need to remember with the pessimist is, again, this is not necessarily malicious behavior. It often feels like they're trying to take you down, and and that's possible. But more often than not, it's sort of a disposition, sort of how we view the world. They're people who just are what researchers call prevention focused. They're focused on preventing bad things from happening. And one tip with them is to really make sure that they have a sense of agency because pessimism isn't necessarily bad if they're pointing out important risks that we need to see. But what's bad is if they feel like they can't do anything about it. So you might ask a question when they say, well, that will never work. Say, okay, well, what would work? Or okay, I hear you, right? And you don't want to polarize with a pessimist because they think optimists are idiots. (laughs) So if you're like, no, everything's good. They're like, oh, you know, they're just rolling their eyes at you. So you want to validate that their perspective is you hear their perspective and then ask them, okay, well, what can we do to change that? Right. Or or if, if you had all the resources in the world, what would you do? Right. Just sort of give them a sense of you have power in this situation. Mm hmm. The victim is the is the third archetype, and that's sort of a flavor of the pessimist. This is someone who also thinks things are going to go terribly wrong, but they think they're going to go wrong to them, right? And they're very focused on to how they're being mistreated. You have to watch out because sometimes people are indeed being mistreated and are indeed a victim in the workplace. So be careful in using this label and any of these labels when you're thinking about your colleague because you want to make sure you're not blaming someone for mistreatment that they're on the receiving end of. Mm -hmm. One of the main tactics with victim is similar to the pessimist, which is to ask them to reframe. So when they say, I never get what I want, ask, well, what's the time that you have gotten something you wanted, right? And trying to, because the chances are they're not, they may see these things as sweeping generalizations, the behavior or the treatment they feel like they're receiving, but there's chances are there's a time in which they were, had the agency, had the ability to change something. You want to remind them that they have that in them, and that can really help. Then there's one of my favorites, the passive-aggressive peer, (laughs) and this is someone who says one thing, does another. They don't feel comfortable expressing their thoughts and feelings in a straightforward manner. This is the question I get asked all the time, how do you deal with these people? One of the things you can do is to really focus on the underlying message. So they may wrap their comment in a snarky message, but they actually have an underlying thought or feeling. And if you can figure out what that is, either by asking some questions 
or just by paying attention and focus on that, then you can sort of give them, you're actually giving them permission to be a little bit more straightforward. Passive aggression is often motivated by fear of rejection, failure, right? An avoidance of conflict. So if you can make it safe for them to actually say what they believe, then you're going to, then hopefully you can nudge them to be a little bit more direct, or at least you're addressing the underlying business issue with them. Even if they're going to continue to be passive aggressive, you've gotten to the underlying message. So the know-it-all is the one I identify most with because I it's the one I think I am more often than the others. As someone who's who confidently says what they believe with sometimes without any data to back it up, right? And this is also the mansplainer, the person who talks over you, maybe interrupts. And the know-it-all, I think one of the things that really works is asking for those facts and data. So if they're saying this product will never succeed or our customers don't want that from us. It's just say, huh, that's interesting. I don't have the same understanding. What are you basing that on, right? What assumptions have you made? Here's the data I'm working with. Can you share the data you're working with? And what I like about that tactic, it's a, it can be confrontational, which I'm not, I'm, a lot of the tactics in the book are both subtle or there's some that are very subtle and some that are very direct. And this is one of the more direct ones because I think it also puts the know-it-all on notice like, we're not going to just let you do this, right? Like, we're not just going to let you proclaim and while also engaging them in a conversation about the topic that they're being a know-it-all about. And then sometimes I think also you need a group of allies to help you c- combat that behavior. And because, you know, especially if it's interrupting or if, if they're targeting specific people, we often hear about, there's lots of studies actually that show that men interrupt women more often then they interrupt other men, for example. So then forming a coalition with folks and who you work with to say, well, we're going to call out that behavior when we see it, right? And someone might say, Amy didn't finish her point. Can you please let her continue? And then we'd love to hear from you, right? Something like that so that it's not just on you to, to completely combat the know-it-all behavior. Mm-hmm. Then you have the biased coworker. And this is someone who commits microaggressions toward you, who exhibits bias in their comments or behaviors. This is an incredibly difficult one to combat, although there's there's lots of, I mean, there are lots and lots of books and articles and, and research about how best to handle this. And I, I will say that the one thing that I think works well with bias is assuming the person has done it unknowingly, which we know a lot of these microaggressions, often people aren't trying to exclude someone. They aren't trying to offend someone, even if it may be that they don't care, or it Mm. may be that they just aren't aware that what they've said is inappropriate or has the impact of being exclusive or excluding rather to the person who is on the receiving end is to ask a question. When someone makes an inappropriate comment to say, Oh, what did you mean by that? Or even, oh, could you repeat that? Right? Because sometimes even making them say it again helps them reflect on, oh, wait, how is this actually being being heard? That's not a 100% successful tactic. None of, And in fact, none of the tactics I would say will be 100% successful all of the time. But oftentimes that does encourage them to reflect on their own behavior and how it's being received by others. Okay, And then we've got the tormentor, and that's someone who you expect to be a mentor, but ends up actually trying to make your life miserable. They may. Oh, clever. Tormentor. (laughs) Exactly. Uh. Yep. 
And I have to tell you, I didn't know what to call this archetype for a while, even though I had heard tons of stories about this type of behavior. And I went to LinkedIn and asked, and someone in my network, Mike Gutman, I have to give him credit, and said, that should be called the tormentor. And it was, it was perfect. So, and that someone maybe assigns you needless work, talks about all the sacrifices they've made, clearly think you should make the same kind of sacrifices. And research shows that we actually tend to have, this was very surprising research that we've published on Harvard Business Review, that when we see someone going through something difficult that we've been through ourselves, maybe working full time while raising young kids or going through a divorce, we have less empathy for them. Hmm. And that's because we either have a little bit of, well, I should say the researchers posit that it's probably because we either have a little bit of amnesia about the situation, right? Which is that that's in the past and connect and relatedly, we think, well, I got through it. What's wrong with them? They can do it, right? Like I knuckled my way through. Why can't they do that too? And that really informs the tormentor's behavior. And again, this is one that Oftentimes, and a lot of the people I talked to for the book who were working with a tormentor chose to quit. That was, and I don't, I don't give that advice to leave your job lightly, but I think the tormentor can have a real impact on your psyche. If you're interested in having a better relationship with them and maybe not, you know, you can't leave your job, then you might think about how you can form an alliance with them, right? Give them some sympathy for the sacrifices they went through. Giving someone empathy when they're tormenting you is the last thing you want to do. But instead of seeing it as generous to them, you know, see it as generous to yourself, which is this is a strategic move to try to transform the relationship. The other thing is there's really great research showing with abusive supervisors, which is what I put the tormentor, that that's the category I'd put them in, is that if you can show that they need you, right, either you have a specific type of knowledge or you play a critical role on the team, if you can make them aware that that they will be dependent on you for something, you can switch the power dynamic a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that that can really help to change the dynamic between you. All right. And then lastly, we've got the political operator. And that is someone who we all play office politics, but this is someone who plays that game really only to benefit themselves and often at the detriment of others. So they might take credit for your ideas. They, again, might be someone who interrupts. They're constantly trying to boost their visibility, their ego, often at the expense of others. And one of my favorite tactics with these folks is to ask them for advice. And it's a bit of a strange tactic and it sometimes can backfire, but to say to them, you're really good at being visible or promoting yourself, or you might even say playing office politics. What could you teach me about doing that? And what's helpful about that tactic is it gets them to reflect on the way they do it. And no one, as far as I know, and and when I've seen this tactic used, this has never happened, but as far as I know, no one's going to be like, oh, well, you have to step on others every moment. <laughs> they, yes. they don't give you the bad version, <laughs> right? Yeah, I've read this great book by Machiavelli. It's called The Prince. <laughs> exactly. It's my operating That's manual. Right. I think you'll love it. <laughs> Here's a copy for you to follow as well. Yeah, no, they don't do that. Instead, they reflect on, hmm, okay, what do I do that's positive? And again, it's sort of a subtle way to show I'm paying attention to the way you're behaving you're about to tell me the good way to do this. Let's hope you continue to do that. 
The other thing about asking anyone advice, what what several studies have shown is that when someone, when you ask someone for advice and they give it to you, they're much more invested in your success, yeah. partly because of their own ego, right? Because they're like, I want to see my advice mm-hmm. actually work. And so with any of the archetypes, any type of difficult person, sometimes asking for their advice gets them to be a little bit more invested in you and takes down the animosity a bit. That's beautiful. Well, Amy, this is a, a lovely rundown. Well, I mean, well, not so lovely to live in, <laughs> but very useful rundown. A menu of monsters at work. Here you go. Right. Yeah. Can you tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Sure. So the one other thing I want to mention, there is a chapter in the book that's principles to get along with anyone, meaning if someone fits into all the archetypes, I hope that's not the case, but or maybe defies categorization altogether. And one of the principles is one that I return to over and over myself, and I've seen really work in with my coaching clients and with the people I consult with, which is to treat any of this, the tactics I just shared, for example, or any of the other tactics in the book, treat it as an experiment, right? You're not going to have 10 steps to reforming a passive aggressive peer, right? It's not, it's never that simple. And distrust anyone who tells you they've got the, the fail safe solution. Instead, choose the tactics you want to try out, try them out on for a short period of time, two weeks, three weeks, take notes, see what works. Okay. Tweak and try again. You have to have that sort of scientist mindset, both to keep your spirits up while you're doing this because it's hard work, but also just to figure out what will work for you and your unique situation. Because it's always, this is a big, it depends advice area, right? And the advice that's going to work for one person dealing with a know-it-all is not going to work with someone else dealing with a know-it-all. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? So F. Scott Fitzgerald, this is a quote I've all, I've always found really interesting. And he says, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in mind at the same time and still keep the ability to function. And I think that what I really like about that is that it's, it is hard to hold conflicting thoughts in your head, especially when you're navigating difficult relationships, because at the same time, you're like, I want to be done with this person. I have no interest. You might even think I hate them, right? And at the same time, you need to remember, okay, wait, in order to do well at my job or in order to survive this week, right, I need to get along with them. And so you can, you're going to need to hold conflicting thoughts in your head in order to actually survive and thrive in these relationships. Okay. And a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? So one of my favorite researchers is Julia Minson, who's at Harvard Kennedy School. And she actually does a lot of work around conflict and difficult conversations with another professor at Harvard Business School named Francesca Gino. And they found, this was actually one of my favorite, they found that more than three quarters of people who were, you know, were about to go into a debate with someone about a controversial issue. So just in a conversation, not a formal debate, but we're going to have a conversation with someone about some contentious concept or idea. Three quarters of those people predicted that they would win the conversation, hmm. which, of course, is mathematically impossible, which just shows you the arrogance and confidence we go into these conversations with. We really believe that our view will prevail. And I think it's important to remember that's really not the case. Yeah. 
Well, it's funny. And my, my brain goes to, I'm perhaps a collaborator to a fault. So now let's, let's think win-win and have come up with a creative solution in which we can, as best as possible, meet as many of our respective needs as one can do by enlarging the pie and whatever. Yeah. So in a way, I don't even think about it as so much as winning and losing. Yes. It's like, I, we're going to go in there and we're going to do our darndest. And I'm hoping I walk away with this really important deal point or whatever. That's right. And we'll see what we can do. Yeah. Well, that is the right mindset. Oh, cool. Thank you. <laughs> well done. Because if you see it as win-lose, right? Like if you go in with the goal of proving that you're right and the other person's wrong, you have nowhere to go in that debate. Because if the other person shows up the same way, like, what are you going to learn? Where are you going to get to? It's a simple concept, this sort of, but we don't, we don't want to treat these relationships or these conversations as win-lose. And it doesn't have to necessarily be win-win, but I'd rather go in with like, well, what, do I, what can I learn? Like, what's my curiosity? Like, what's going to happen at the end of this? Julia and Francesca also did this other study about conversational receptiveness, which I think you actually probably would rate very high on. And it's the use of language to communicate one's willingness to thoughtfully engage with opposing views. And what they've studied this quite a bit. And one of the things I really like is that they actually have found in their research that women tend to naturally exhibit conversational receptiveness. And the reason I like it is because as someone who, you know, I'm co-host of the podcast Women at Work, I look a lot at gender research, and most of it is very depressing and mm. very negative on the experience of what penalties we incur at work, the behavior we're allowed to exhibit. But I love that this research shows that we're just naturally better at this. And their conclusion is if you want to improve the way people at work interact, you know, put women in charge of some of these difficult conversations. And if you want to train people to be better at conversational receptiveness, focus on men. So anyway, that's one of my other favorite findings. Mm -hmm. And a favorite book? Oh, I am a big fiction reader. And I actually, I have lots of favorite books over the year. But one of the ones that I read recently was a, a collection of short stories by a woman named Danielle Evans. And it's called The Office of Historical Corrections. And mm. what I like about it, as someone who thinks about conflict and relationships all the time, is that every story, ultimately, and most stories, right, have a point of conflict. But these really are about conflict over interpersonal issues, but also how political issues play into those personal issues. And I, I really read it with that lens of how do relationships fall apart and then how do they come back together or how do they not come back together because people can't actually repair them. Mm -hmm. Okay. And a favorite tool, something you used to be awesome at your job? My notes app on my phone. <laughs> I used to have like a photographic memory when I was a kid. No kidding. Yeah. My Spanish teacher in high school, when we did vocab tests for extra credit, I would write the page number that the vocab word was on hmm. because I could. That's how I remembered that. And I would picture the page. My memory now is so terrible. I think it's age, stress, <laughs> right? Like the, there's just too much that's that's happened in my brain for it to recall those details. So my notes app has become my memory. And it's funny. I actually like it because it helps me capture ideas. I actually sometimes write the beginning of articles in there just because it's I have my phone with me all the time. But it's also just funny to look through. Like I have over, I think, 1500 notes at this point. And sometimes it's just like a random word. I'm like, I don't know what this means. <laughs> it's, so it's also entertaining to just go through and look at. So it's productive and entertaining. Okay. 
And is there a particular nugget you share, something that really connects and resonates with folks and they quote back to you often? Yeah, I did a, a TEDx talk. And at the end, I shared this mantra about conflict. And it's the thing when someone will say, oh, I, I saw your TED talk and they'll, they'll repeat it back to me. And it's sometimes people are going to be mad at you and that's okay. And <laughs> just accepting that rupture in relationship is not only normal, but sometimes it's helpful, right? It helps you either repair that relationship and make it stronger, or you learn something about yourself in those disagreements. Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? They should go to my website, which is amyegallo.com. I actually have a monthly newsletter I send out with advice about relationships at work, conflict, communication. You can sign up for my newsletter there and also you know, find my book, Getting Along, and my, my previous book as well, which is the HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict. And if people are interested in gender, women at work, I also co-host that podcast I mentioned, Women at Work, which is put out by Harvard Business Review, which you can find wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yes. Remember that your relationships matter. And I don't shortchange them. And I mean that not just about repairing the relationships that are causing you grief, strife, but also be appreciative of the relationships that fill your cup. There's, I think sometimes we take those relationships more for granted and thank your friends at work. Give them a, send them a thank you note, send them an email or Slack message, just saying, you know what, I'm so glad for our connection. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Amy's has been a treat. I wish you much luck and much getting along with different folks at work. Thank you, Pete. Thanks for having me. I really like Amy's take. Sometimes people are going to be mad at you and that's okay. Just internalize that as a little inoculation for what may come later. Great stuff from Amy. Again, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items that we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP815. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.